0: Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman and together with my wife Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message.
1: And first and foremost, we have our very own Miss Lauren Albo.
2: This is so real all of a sudden we're in front of everyone anyways. hi people I know and don't know and all the in between um, I thank you so much for to my, all my peers who've like gone on this journey with me I'm so grateful for all of you you're so beautiful and I thank you so much for my pastors and pastor everyone in this front row basically <laughs> Pastor Mara and James and um, Pastor Michael gave me a really good word of encouragement this morning um, to quote, don't mess up. (laughs) So, so, so heartfelt, always. (laughs) Wow, this kind of feels like my, like if I was like giving an Oscars acceptance speech and like I have like 10 seconds to thank everyone I've ever known in my entire life, I'm not giving an Oscars speech, but it's like what I imagine it would be, right? (laughs) Okay, let's get into it. The title of this message is going to be Preferring God. We'll be diving into the beginnings of Mark, and we're going to learn how Jesus prioritized time with God, the Father above all else, and why it is crucial that we follow in his footsteps. So, a lot has happened in Mark 1 and Jesus' life leading up to our focal verses later in Mark. We actually see that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Um, And when he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit came to him and sent him and led him into the wilderness where he stayed for 40 days and 40 nights. And after that, he begins preaching away about the kingdom of God. And then one day he ends up picking his very first couple of disciples, um, Simon and his brother Andrew, and then later on a couple more. Eventually, that brings us to Jesus having this long day of teaching in the synagogue. And translates into a long night of healing the sick and healing diseases. And basically the work just never stopped for Jesus. It was just busyness left, right, and center. And we'll now look at the passage that refers to Jesus praying in a solitary place. The morning after the busyness in Mark 1, verses 35 through 39. It says... Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off. So he's had a long night of, that ended at dark. Then he wakes up, and it's still dark. To a solitary place. So this wasn't a huge jam session, right? Where he prayed. His response to what God brought him to the night prior was fellowship with the Father. It was reverence for the Father, What is reverence? It's why he went up on his own instead of sleeping in with the rest of the house. Really, we see that this is what Jesus preferred. He showed us. He preferred to spend time alone with the Father. And how how do we do that? How do we get to a place where we prefer God, prefer Jesus, prefer time with the Father above X, Y, and Z? The demands of his leadership, the pressure, the busyness actually drove him to God. So where does your busyness drive you? Does it cause you to feel alone or create isolation or burnout? Jesus' busyness had a mission. Does your busyness have a mission? If so, where does that mission come from? Maybe you've created busyness in hopes that You'll create a sense of purpose until a better distraction comes along to pull you from facing disappointment. Jesus, his source, the Father, allowed for his condition for his life to bear good fruit in him and those around him. Maybe your busyness is exactly what you want and you feel called to be doing, but the feelings of purposelessness keeps you in cycles of confusion. How are you sustaining your calling? Continuing on in verses 36 and 37, Simon was like, yo, Jesus, everyone's searching for you. Jesus didn't care. He quickly replies in verse 38, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. He wasn't concerned about writing the popularity that he had in that same town. Jesus' priority was recognized in that moment. He goes back to the busyness of healing miracles in a new town and continues to fulfill his calling to preach across Galilee. Our source tells our capacity and gives direction. He preferred to include the Father's voice in his life. His purpose and mission was defined by his time with the Father. So just a second ago, I listed off a couple of scenarios where busyness could be driving you. Well, um, mine was creating busyness. Um, It was really hard to recognize, though, because the busyness that I had created was, was so seemingly good. And it's actually stuff I still aim to do in my life today. I said yes to new areas of serving. I said yes to making new time for new friends and current friends. And saying yes to out-of-the-job out-of-the-box job opportunities. And the list goes on and on. And I still want to be doing all those things. They were meaningful things, but I wasn't when I wasn't able to create that busyness anymore, my identity slipped into what I can do for Jesus without asking him first. I preferred avoiding his voice and doing what I thought was best, which just led to emotional burnout. We have an option. We get to prioritize our own tasks or choose to prioritize God and let him help with the rest. Just like Jesus, how we serve must overflow from a time spent with the Father, not simply relying on ourselves and what we do and what we feel is right. Out of our dwelling with the Father is where desire, perseverance, and vision for our lives should be created. It's not that God doesn't want us to be busy. But so that when he does put the opportunity to serve here and the new job promotion there and the next big thing, that we can rely on his strength, not ours. Isaiah 43, verses 2 and 4 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, I will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. When we choose the Father, our preferences, when we choose to set our preferences towards his will, he will carry us. Trials are inevitable and they're varied. He will come to the waters. He will pass through the rivers with you. He will walk through the fire with you. Why not go to the coach for the next play? Who will always want you to win? Who will always make the hard call when blurred vision kicks in because you've been sweating and you've been going at it all season? Who loves you the most? I like to think we're all God's best players, and He's just waiting, ready for us to give us our next play. What we do is a reflection of what we prefer. We are built to take part in a relationship with the Father, back and forth communication with Him. Do we choose to prefer loving Him and His plans for our life, or do we choose our own version of busyness? So here are three practices towards building a heart that prefers God. One, take action. Practical actions are radical decisions for the ability to see Jesus' priorities for your life as it unfolds. Wake up early to pray, practice the Sabbath, schedule a prayer walk. It's sacrificial time out of your own schedule. When Jesus went to pray, it didn't cost the disciples. He knows your challenges. He knows your scheduling. He knows it'll look unique to you. Search out his heart for you in these things. Two, integrate silence. Abide in Jesus like Jesus did with the Father. There's two types of silences that could be happening, a surrendering type silence, which is what Jesus did when he was baptized, dedicating his life back to the Father and in the wilderness, overcoming the temptations of the devil with fasting and declaring his scripture, silencing his own desires, a quiet silence, ask us, where can I stop spewing out words and requests? How can I open up to hear God speak unaccompanied? let your be inform your do our being with god sustains what god tells us is our doing jesus priority turned from his flesh and said more of you god less of me so let your nests at less and no reflect how much time we've spent with the father spiritual life means that we have a way through the reality of our calling not an idealistic escape this is a part of our rebirth as christians Dying to ourselves out of a love for Christ. So let us ask, what do we prioritize and prefer before God? We're built to first bask in the glory that is our creator, King Jesus, to then reflect that and have the privilege of participating in his mission for us in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Let's be Christians who build their life and hearts in a way that prefers God above all things. Thank you.
0: Incredible. That was phenomenal. It's amazing. Next, I want to welcome Otavita, my guy in full traditional Tongan dress right now. Gonna tear up it. Right. Good morning, church.
3: Good morning. Y'all feeling good? Yes. I am too. Now I want to address the elephant in the room. I am not on sound today. Aaron is. And he's doing a tremendous job, right? Is there a round of applause for Aaron? All righty. So um, today I'm diving into a light subject of paying attention to pain. Real light, thanks. Now I'm going to get serious now, okay? I want everyone to close your eyes for me. Think about what I'm saying right now. Pay attention to pain. Consider for a moment the vast array of pain you have accumulated in your lifetime. Now, consider the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures invite us to integrate seasons of pain, grief, sadness, as a central aspect of spiritual life. To reject these seasons is to live only half life, and to live a spirituality marked by unreality. You can open your eyes. In John fourteen, twenty seven it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is a wonderful promise and a life-giving command. Let's consider what's happening when Jesus says this. Jesus is chatting to his disciples and he's told them about his impending death. He has also comforted them by promising the Holy Spirit, who will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. He has promised that though he is leaving them, he will not leave them as orphans. But he will come to them. Now, needless to say, the disciples were feeling some type of way. Their leader, their Messiah, has just said, yo, I'm out, guys. It's going to be a tough ride. I'm doing this all for y'all. You're going to be cool, but I'm not going to be here, but I'm going to be here. I can only imagine at that point, right, so you're going, but you're not going, but you're coming back. But you've gone. But you're right. Cool, 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 cool. What are we doing in between? You know, it's like, you know, my dad dropping me off at a, a rugby game one day, and he's like, "All right, play good, or I'm not coming back." I mean, I'm coming back. <laughs> Bill, like, play good. I was like, "Wait, wait, what am I doing in between?" Like, yeah. So here's the thing. Jesus knew that this news was going to hurt his disciples, that he was going to put them through pain, that this moment is something that is so unfathomable that they're going to be in pain more than they've ever thought, uh, felt in their life. And you know what he did? He told them, with them, and told them to face it head on. Pay attention to the pain. Now, the world has a different way of dealing with pain. Run away. Run away. Quit, medicate, eat, drink, go out, go to your idols for comfort. All of these do not pay attention to the pain you were in. If we learn one thing today, it's that that is not Jesus' way. If we understand that Jesus is the way to the Father, we love him and obey his teachings, we will see the Holy Spirit will dwell with us and in us, and we will not be alone when we pay attention to pain. See, God calls us to pay attention to the pain because the pain isn't to be diminished as no big deal, but to be felt as a purpose to grow through it And gain the rich fruit of God-like compassion towards others that can flow from us to the world. So that we can be disciples of God. Not without our faults, but consistently trying. We could be like a, a David or a Peter or a Paul. We can be those disciples, face our fears and our pain head on, with Jesus by our side, even though we can't see him, we know that he is there because he's come back for us. He is with us and always will be. We can see during, the, or in the Bible, numerous times where pain is expressed, right? You got the Hebrews with their laments who dramatically and physically tore their clothes apart, putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes. Job has 35 chapters who describe a man who was anguished, angry. And thinking about suicide? David, a man after God's own heart. Many a poem and songs repeatedly reflecting his losses, disappointment, and fears. He's quite literally the original Drake. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Psalm thirty-four eighteen says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. As a leader, David understood how the grieving process is is healthy spiritual life activity. He knew that grieving one's losses before moving on was a choice. He knew that diving into that darkness and trusting God is the best thing he can do. So, Tavita, what does that look like for us? Great question, church. (laughs) Application, uh, day-to-day application looks a little different for everyone. For myself, sometimes it's writing, journaling. Other times it's picking up an instrument and playing something. For you, it could look like that. It could be different. What I do know is that in day-to-day life, we have a chance, a choice, just like David did, to make sure we pay attention to this. Sometimes it looks a little different though. Maybe you find a confide in a friend. Maybe you go to your neighborhood group, shout out to PDP, woo. <laughs> Sometimes having that alone time, that silence with God that Lauren talked about, is our time to pay attention. It's in these moments that God connects with us, calms us, lets us know like Jesus let his disciples know, I'm here. What we can learn from John fourteen twenty seven is like Jesus confronting his disciples and telling them the impending pain that they're going to see his death, we too can find comfort in our pain. Confide in God, trust that Jesus is the way, and the Holy Spirit will comfort us. That God will strengthen us, that through his season of pain, trusting God is this process that doesn't hurt us, but refines us and brings us closer to God, connected to him, becoming more like the disciples he calls us to be. David writes in Psalm 42, 3, Tears have been my food day and night. Whew the original Drake, man, he, in his feels. He never stops paying attention to the reality of what life is, that it can be a struggle, that it will be tough, that it is painful. It's brutal. Now, while it's been some time since he wrote that, the world hasn't changed in that regard, has it? If anything, today This world can show us exactly the true reality of how harsh and painful it is at the click of a button in an instant. But you know what the world does? It puts on a mask. When you see some pain, you see all this fake joy. When you start feeling a certain way, it tells you to feel this other way. See, if we fall into that cycle, we lose sight of the fact that God loves and accepts us where we are in that moment, unmasked, raw. That when we feel our emotions, we aren't just connected to his love, but any walls and distractions that we build to keep people out, that we can't show our feelings to people, those walls crumble. And God uses that to help shine that God-like compassion onto the world. It's critical that in order to be true disciples of God, we must pay attention to the pain in God's presence as an expression of prayer to him. Often, what may seem as the ending becomes the beginning. To quote Peter Scazzaro from just the literature that we read, about a thousand million pages in the last nine months, He says, loss cuts something out of us, much like a gardener cuts back a plant for greater fruit. God does something in us through the fire of pain that enlarges our capacity to wait and surrender his will. Church, paying attention to pain is a wonderful tool to living a healthy spiritual life. But most of all, It's a tool God teaches us that is distinctive of God's people. We are God's people. All of us. Pay attention to your pain. Be in that moment with God. And we are going to make it through it as true disciples of God. Thank you.
0: Amazing, amazing. Phenomenal job, Tavita. That was incredible. Our last, but certainly not least, apprentice this morning is Ben Butler. Let's give it up for him as he encourages us.
4: Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Um, weren't those two great? Yeah. That amazing? Hard to follow. Um, awesome. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Ben. Um, I get to wrap this up today. I also get to talk about the power of vulnerability and weakness. Woo! (laughs) Um, Okay, so I'm going to start, right? I'm going to start by recounting the greatest failure of my filmmaking journey. I'm then going to build a case that God's power and strength rest on us in our weakness and end with a tool designed to help us see how weak and vulnerable we're actually willing to be. Okay. Right? Right? Okay. Um, great. Okay. So, if you've known me for five minutes, you may know that I'm a product of film school. Um, if, if you know that, you may have heard my film school joke. I use it a lot. And, and the great thing about film school is it's really good at teaching you how to totally eviscerate film school when you graduate. Like, seriously. Any, any film school grads in the house? Oh, a few? Okay. I'm sorry. I'm so... I'm so sorry. Um, I, so I was really disappointed. My, my freshman year, I, I, I realized what was going on, and I was like, "I'm gonna take my education into my own hands, okay?" And I'm gonna make this massive project. The, the summer of my freshman year, I was working my butt off. I was praying and decreeing God's blessings over this project, and it was a total disaster. It was—it was so like I'll use some dramatic language, but no, I mean it. It, it was so awful that in my arrogance. I led my friends, who were good enough to come with me on this, into very dangerous situations. Situations that were so dangerous that our our lives were at risk. And in the rubble of that experience, in, in the aftermath, I was left face to face with my own weaknesses as a leader, as a filmmaker, and as a friend. It was also in that time that I got the biggest download of wisdom I ever have in my entire life. It was, it was so dramatic that it was honestly like going through puberty again. I was like, I was like a different person afterwards. And I, I came to realize that the more willing I am to humble myself before God, the more willing he is to pour out his grace, power, and wisdom on me. I've often been, maybe, maybe you guys have as well, I've often been really confused by Jesus' words in, in the garden. I'm not in the garden, in the cross. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like, that's not very heroic of you to say, Jesus. Yeah. Right? Like, he's, he's the savior of the world. Right. Like, if I could just suggest a different psalm to Jesus, um, maybe, uh, although I walk the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Yeah. Like, that's a cool psalm. That's kind of epic. Yeah. Right? Wouldn't that have been better to come out of Jesus' mouth in that moment? And, and to double down on the lack of heroism, in the Garden of Gethsemane, <laughs> Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Which is kind of crazy to me. Like I don't know, putting myself in the disciples' shoes, seeing Jesus there, He's he's the guy that like bravely rebuked the wind and the waves. He's the guy that told the legion of demons to leave like they were made of paper clips. And to see him there, yeah, to see him there sweating drops of blood out of anxiety would be enough to make anyone shake in their boots or sandals if you're the disciples. But the point is the all-powerful god of the universe was willing to look weak and ask for help of his weak and fickle disciples who ended up dozing off anyway. But the point is, he asked, right? This is a countercultural idea even today, but also in Jesus' time, his followers were shocked he was not the conquering political king that they had been hoping for. And while the larger world treats weakness and failure as a liability, God sees our weakness as a gift. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, 1 Corinthians 1, 25, 27. God uses imperfect people to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Okay, so using Jesus' posture in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see a very clear model of what it looks like on how to draw on God's strength through being vulnerable with our weakness. Okay, it's also an incredible model at pointing out the ways that we often perform, in the opposite out of pride and defensiveness. Okay, so for example, here are three ways based off of Jesus' model in the Garden of Gethsemane on how we can model weakness and vulnerability and then the opposite. Okay, so number one. uh, Someone who's modeling weakness and vulnerability may say, I allow myself to grieve in front of others without trying to put a bow on my pain. The opposite of that, which I'm guilty of, um, someone would say, I bury my sadness in front of others. (laughs) Right? I've done that. Like Davida was talking about, like we put on, how how often do we put on a smile on our worst days? We're really good at it. Number two, I share when I'm feeling overwhelmed. The opposite of that is, I refuse to fall apart, always modeling strength and vision. Weakness and vulnerability, I regularly ask for the help and prayer of others. The opposite, I rarely appear needy in front of others. While I'm willing to be there for others, I'm not willing for them to be there for me. That one got me. Um, and and the, the great thing about this is some of it is, it is relational, and that's the power of the local church, right? We have all these amazing neighborhood groups where we can practice this really hard thing of being vulnerable with other people. It's so special. Like, where other wherever place in the world can you do that? Um, great. And if you're like me, and those definitions were particularly convicting for you, then you're in good company. Because God loves using people in spite of brokenness to accomplish his will. Peter had anger issues. Thomas doubted. Timothy struggled with fear. Moses was a stutterer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jacob was a liar. Samson was a womanizer. God loves to use broken people to accomplish his will. And it's by being vulnerable with our brokenness that we access true strength. As God spoke to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Um, Okay, so I want to be clear that just by being vulnerable with our weaknesses doesn't give us an excuse to stay there. Um, Jesus didn't stay on the cross bearing the sin of the world. He's he's not still there. With all the the people I just listed, God used them in spite of their weakness, grew them, and redeemed their weakness. Romans 5.20, uh, 6, 1-2. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. What then shall we say? Shall we continue to sin so that grace man increase? Classic Paul. Certainly not. <laughs> How can we who die to sin live in it any longer? And the great thing is, vulnerability is the way out of the cycle of weakness in our life. Yeah. James 5, 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Yeah. Right. So perhaps we need to be more vulnerable in our lives. Um, but honestly, that, that can be really scary. Like, if you're, if you're a leader, um, you know, maybe if someone saw the true depths of who you are, they wouldn't want to follow you anymore. Or maybe, maybe you love, you know, hanging out with your friend, but, like, maybe if they saw the true depths of who you are, maybe they really wouldn't want to hang out with you anymore. Wow. Those, aren't, those aren't always true, but it can feel that way. I'm going to skip this part. <laughs> <laughs> or you could say... Listen, that's great and all in the church. You know, that's, I, I could see that in certain areas of my life, but I could never be that as a parent. I could never be vulnerable with my kids like that. They can't see me that way. Well, I tell you that the minute I saw how weak and vulnerable my parents actually were was the minute I had the most compassion for them. But no matter what, being vulnerable with our weakness will always be scary. The truth is you can rest easy knowing that this is a concept anchored in the heart of Christianity. Life comes from death. The humble are exalted. The last are first, and the poor inherit the, sp- the kingdom of heaven. Are you poor in spirit? Are you feeling weak today? Are you feeling like you're not quite strong enough? I'd encourage you to get dangerously vulnerable. Open up with someone and don't tie a bow on it. Be willing to let someone see the raw, messy, disgusting parts of our life. It can be scary. But God meets us there. And beyond the fear of being truly known is the strength and power beyond anything we could have ever asked for or imagined.
1: Yeah. Mr. Ben Steinbacher, up here.
5: Hello. Um, It's nice to be back here because almost exactly a year to the day, I was right back in that seat, and I remember it because, um, how many of you know that sometimes when God speaks to you, he'll only give you one word, and sometimes that word is go? And uh, more than a year ago, God gave me two words, and it was Los Angeles. Um, But I'd never been here before, so I didn't realize that LA was like 40 little cities in one. (laughs) And so I get to L.A. and I'm like, okay, what do I do next? And I, like, I had no direction from God. I didn't know. And uh, the funniest thing happened was some random pastor on Instagram that lives in Baltimore, I reached out to tell him I liked his podcast. And he said, oh, you're in L.A., go to C3. And that's how I ended up here. So um, almost a year later, now I'm here and I was there. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray real quick because um, I tried to preach something else, something that like sounded really good. And as I like chewed on the scripture, I feel like God was like, I gave you this scripture because it's so personal to you. This is a lesson I've been trying to teach you for like the last five or 10 years. Um, So I pray that he makes it equally as personal to you and speaks to your situation. Uh, Father in Jesus name, thank you that you know our place of need and thank you that you're the only one that can uh, take, take something. And, and make it so specific and touch people exactly where they're at and give them exactly what they need today. And I pray that you should do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Cool. So um, we're going to dive into 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. And uh, the title of this message is Embracing Paul's Thorn. I just want to turn around and look at this. We don't have this at South Bay, so it's kind of glamorous and pretty. <laughs> and it's, it's nice. It's nice. I was like kind of at awe I was staring at it earlier. Um, so embracing or embracing your thorn. And I share this because, um, I feel like this is so relevant in our culture and we don't understand the concept of a thorn. So so much of the time it just ends up becoming our identity. Like we so relate with our trauma that, um, some people live their whole lives and their life is just the story of their trauma. It's just the thing that they went through. It's just their their thorn. And especially in uh, today where it's like so common to like go to therapy or like talk about your parents or your narcissistic ex-boyfriend or like whatever. I'm not saying that's not real. I'm just saying for some people, you meet them and they're still telling the same story from 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, even though God has brought you out of a season. And um, let's be clear, we don't know what Paul's thorn is. The fun thing about when you're looking into this is so many people try and guess and tell you what his thorn is, but I think God intentionally left that vague. That way you can read it and it can apply to anyone's situation. Um, so we're going to dive into Second Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. Y'all, y'all having fun back there? I'm usually back there, so it it always makes me laugh when someone like foreshadows the verse, and they take three minutes. Like, oh, threw it up. Okay. Um, (laughs) So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So what's this about? Like, what is, what is this about? Um, that's what I've been asking myself and praying for like the last month as I've been reading this, is, is what is this about? And when I first started um, looking into this, I thought this was about Paul's thorn. And like like I said, I, I think that's um, the mistake that I've made most of my life is that um, I've made my life about the things that I've been through or my thorn. And, and I, didn't, I didn't realize like there's a process here. And, and you're not supposed to stay at your thorn, your insecurity, your fears, what you weren't given, all the ways you're not enough. That's not meant to be the story of your life. That's not where God's trying to leave you. And if you keep going for two verses, you get to the end. What's the story here? It's God's grace. And God is always trying to take you from a place of um, where you are to his goodness and his grace. Um, And so I'm going to break down real quick a few things that embracing your thorn allows you to do. Um, First thing is, it allows you to put your thorn in its place. And like I said, like when you realize that your thorn is... Um, maybe something you've been through, or maybe it was uh, a messenger of Satan, but it was also something given to you, that it's not your identity. It's not who you are. It's not what your life has to remain. Maybe you had uh, a dad that wasn't there, and like that's the story of your life. Like, like That's not your identity. Um, And so when you're able to take the thorn and and allow it to be what it is, I'm looking up at the time because I know I can speak a lot, (laughs) <laughs> um, when you allow it to be what it is, it, it sets you free from living your life believing that, that that's all you are. is that thing that happened in your past. Um, the second thing it does is it gives your pain a purpose. So if you look at Second Corinthians twelve seven, 7, um, it starts with, so to keep me from becoming conceited, and it also ends with to keep me from becoming conceited. And so Paul's thorn ends up being the exact thing he needed to help him with the exact temptation that he had in his life. And so even though it was a messenger of Satan, God used it in such a specific way that only he could to redeem. Like God's the only one that could take that thing that the devil meant for evil and use it for good and end up redeeming that 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 part of Paul and use it to further the impact that God had for his life. And, and I think, like I said, is, is it's easy for us to get stuck on our pain. But, but God has a purpose even for your pain. God has a purpose for every part of your life. And um, when you realize that, that's, that's when you can be free. That's when you can actually live out the calling that you have on your life. Um, and the last thing is, it allows your life to move from a story of suffering to a story of grace and God's goodness. So like we see Paul's thorn here. And before this, like in Second uh, Corinthians 11, he lists off like 80 things that have happened to him. Like the, his first shipwreck and he gets shipwrecked later. He lists like stoning. I think he got, st- I, I'm not even gonna try and count. Um, <laughs> but he had so many hard things happen. But, but when you read like the New Testament, he wrote so much of it, that's such a small part of it. The story is God's grace and God's goodness. But in order to get there, what you see is, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And just the word pleaded stands out there. Because, like, have you actually gotten to the place in your life where you've allowed yourself to, like, really plead with God about some things? And, like, get humble and get vulnerable. And I didn't know until this last year that you can, like, be driving down the road and turn off your music and yell at God. And um, this year, more than anything else, I I think I've had at least five moments where I I was like really honest with God. And I said, God, I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask to come to L.A. I didn't want to be here. Like I didn't ask to, to grow up in a family that struggles with mental health and for me to be so good at working with people with mental health because that's what I've spent my life doing. And there's so many things that, like, um, I just try to pretend like typical man fashion, like it doesn't bother me. And it wasn't until I got really vulnerable and really humble and like asked God for help this year that so many of the things that I just thought were like these reasons that I'm not enough or that I'll never um, get to live out this this life that God has for me, instead started to become these things that I started seeing God redeem. And so, just the biggest question that I would ask you is, um, is there an area of your life that you still haven't really gotten honest with God about, that you still look at, and it's, it's your thorn, it's your reason you're not enough, it's where you struggle, it's, it's that place of pain that you almost don't talk about, or that you're shamed to, to bring up in your neighborhood group, and, and I think about it because um, I think about that song um, about God moving mountains, and, and for me personally, like I've always thought external mountains, but God moving the mountain of shame from something that happened in my childhood has been the last 11 years of my walk with God. That's, that's been the mountain he's had to move. Um, but it wasn't until I got vulnerable and humble with God that he allowed me to do that. Um, so that would be my invitation to you is if there's something in life that still feels like a reason that you're not enough that's all right, because it's God's grace that's sufficient. It's God's grace that gets to be enough. And that gets to be the story of your life.
0: Wow. It was amazing. Thank you for sharing that, Ben. Next up, next apprentice that's going to be sharing with us today was leading us in worship. So would you welcome Simone as she shares the word?
6: you guys wow so i usually stand over there or over there and here it's different it it really is and the mic is different it's shaped different so um you'll have to give me a moment to adjust and also i'm a hooper i'm a hollower uh, in, in worship, so like my voice is a little tired, so I, I grew up in the South, grew up in West Virginia for like 10 years, so it was not uh, non-denominational, but really it was Pentecostal church, so that's just like my roots, and so I'm used to that, so I don't save my voice, and maybe I should have, because um, now i have got to speak to you guys. Um, hi, so my message today is called Full Disclosure. And it's probably because I've been watching the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. <laughs> I'm like, why, why did that stick in my mind? And I'm like, because all you're doing on Instagram is watching those reels and be like, yeah, yeah, I could do that. And like, you're wrong. I don't know why, but you are. Um, <laughs> but uh, today we're going to do some spiritual anatomy. Did anybody do an uh, anatomy course in high school or college? Yeah. Was there that kid in the class that was like a little too into the dissections? <laughs> Wasn't me. No, I'm not the thing. Um, but, <laughs> but I just think that there's so much to learn about ourselves um, that God has written out for us in His Word that I really want to dive into. We're going to do some uh, spiritual anatomy, and we're going to dissect what a godly love looks like and the truth it reveals about discipleship. The scripture I'm going to be using today is Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. And this is Jesus speaking in the temples of Bethany. Uh, he's been telling parables all day. He's been answering questions left and right from the Sadducees and the Pharisees who are trying to trip him up in his words, are trying to demean his teachings any way they can to trip him up and discredit him. And so the Pharisees ask him, "Teacher, what is the greatest commandment?" To which they are like, waiting. Uh, and Jesus answers, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul." In all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He denies the Pharisees two things in this answer the ability to hold one value of God over another, pointing out their legalistic manners and their hard hearts, and the ability to esteem themselves at a higher standard than others, giving full disclosure of God's intentions behind creation and relationship with man. Jesus states that. All of it matters. Ourselves, our full selves, is what he desires to love him. Even the parts of ourselves, our heart, our soul, our mind, that are highly changeable and volatile and are necessary, actually the most important part of loving other people and loving God. And loving God is vitally tied to loving others. And something that gets in the way of loving others is loving ourselves. And I know the verse just said, love others like you love yourself but I think we need to do a little dissection of that too what does it mean to love yourself? I think um, in the age and the mecca of self-love that is LA the, the you do you attitude that I'm a do me sensibility the do not disturb I'm in a bubble bath of sorrow please don't bother me till tomorrow kind of attitude um, that I'm totally totally guilty of I, there's times you're just like, leave me alone. Just give me time to process what I'm going through. But that's just like not what God intended. Yeah. And listen, God is not against solitude and rest. God literally made Elijah sleep and eat cake he, until he was rested enough to do what he needed to do. Like, if God told me to sleep and eat cake, I'd be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have to tell me twice. Um, <laughs> Jesus napped in the bottom of the boat while everyone else was out there rowing for their life. You know, and he was constantly finding moments to slip away and be for prayer and be quiet with the Father. God himself took the seventh day of creation and rested and sanctified that day of rest as holy, as worship. But when rest and solitude starts to look like isolation and idolization of self-worth and time, this is out of relation of how this is out of relation of how we're made to function. Yeah. It's contrary to how we are made to love ourselves. So, real quick, let's define a godly manner that entails inviting. Um, that, excuse me. Godly <laughs> definition of what it means to love yourself. Loving yourself is a godly in a godly manner entails inviting him into the depths of who we are. We have to acknowledge and glean an understanding of love from an eternal beginning, not an inward one. Loving yourself is not a solitary action as a Christian. In 1 John 4.19, he says, We love because he first loved us. We learn from a father the manner in which we are supposed to love, made in his image and daily reconciled to our standard, Jesus Christ. Here are three ways I will break down what a godly love looks like. A godly love is inventational. Wrong page. I numbered them for this reason, and now they're backwards. Um, (laughs) A godly love is active, and a godly love is intentional. So God's love is invitational. It involves our heart, our emotions, our personality, our character, the fact that we love Fruit Loops more than Captain Crunch, the reason we can't watch basketball. We are uniquely designed (laughs) for a purpose. All of those things, they really matter. God really was like, that's you, the annoying one that laughs too much. Um, um, we honor and love God by bringing all of this into a rich relationship with him, sharing every part of our heart with him and allowing him to posture it, knowing he is good and his plans for us are to prosper. He can show us how to understand our hearts, our wants, our desires, because Jeremiah seventeen nine says, because our hearts can also be deceitful. We can find ourselves yearning for things that God knows down the road. is just going to bring us pain. But when invited, God can give us a new heart. A heart that aches for what is good and pure and right. That longs to be aligned to him and his good plan for us. A heart that feels deeply and is filled by God with good things to then pour out to others. Again, the first commandment is always like the second. It is intrinsically linked that when we love God, we love others. When we show our heart to people, we live in an invitational love. allowing ourselves to be knitted together as well as sharpened by one another. You learn what it means to live in the body of Christ, connected to one another, in use to one another in our uniqueness. Even Jesus, the Son of God who knew Father firsthand, had 12 disciples, 12 men in which he ate and drank and dwelled with during his entirety of his ministry. Living in invitational love is acknowledging that we don't just love others as we love ourselves, but loving others is actually loving ourselves. It is in the hardest parts of our life that we have to have the softest heart towards God and towards others. Next, God's love is active. He lives in us and through us in an active way. It is literally life-giving. Our soul is brought from dead to living from the sacrifice of Jesus. Our status is taken from commoner to royalty. Our works go from toils to laying up eternal glories. The ultimate gift of God making us capable to talk and commune with God in daily with prayer, receiving wisdom from his word, and being accepted in the body of Christ as his child. Being active in God's love through and to others actually brings us life. Serving others actually serves you. This can look like taking part in church or even just taking someone out to coffee and being a listening ear making sure that your why to serving is aligned with God in us, to love others from an exhaustible source. A soul that is given freely and open to God is transformed. And finally, God's love is intentional. It requires the participation of our mind, of our thinking, and our understanding. And when we were worshiping second service, I just, I, I had this, um, God was speaking to me about, This is not an escapist religion. This is not something that you go into because you don't want to deal with the pressures of the world. It is a saving power. But when you believe in Jesus, you care for others. You care for this world. It is not escapist to believe in Jesus. It is actually a tying to others, a caring heart that pours out to others. And there's no way to escape that if you actually love God and you actually love Jesus so in our mind and in our thinking and understanding we can find our thoughts leading us towards actions and patterns of behaviors that leave us empty and unsatisfied we can use our thinking to shelter us from things that are actually good from us keep us from experiences that are actually going to grow us out of protection when we allow god into our mind and open every door to him he can renew our thinking with his words to think on what is good and acceptable and perfect. In fact, he says to do this daily. A mind centered and renewed in Christ does not lack for wisdom. It thinks of others and believes truth about itself and other people. God intentionally in his love for all of us is all around us. It's in the fact that we live the exact amount away from the sun not to burn to a crisp, but still be warmed by it. It's the fact that we have eyelashes to keep debris out of our eyes, He even carries down to our thoughts, every single one. We have the ability to express these thoughts to others. That's so intentional too. We have the ability to encourage one another with our mouth, with our words. Jesus told parables. We sing praise. He has intentionally made us to be connected and creative in these ways. There's a total transformation that happens with us in these places when we live with God with our full self. He redeems those places we allow him in and is for the purpose of loving others. And allowing others in church to speak into your life is so powerful. Watching the love of God pour out from them into you allows you to see just how plentiful the love of God is. This is the truth of discipleship. The full disclosure of God to us that reveals we do not live life in a vacuum, but our lives are meant to be poured out to others as Jesus poured his life out to us. Our hearts that need to be postured, our soul that needs to be surrendered, and our mind that needs to be renewed. All of these things are a choice. These are the areas of ourselves that we do not willingly lend themselves without action, invitation, and intention. And vice versa, it can form us the state of our heart, our soul, and our mind. Inviting our friends, our leaders, our neighborhood groups into the fullness of God in us to mourn with those who mourn, be joyful with those who are joyful sharing in relationship what it is to be human and what it is to love God, and to be a body that points one another to Jesus, our example of it all. Thanks, guys.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Seriously, let's give it up for Simone. That was phenomenal. Wow. Well, we, have, uh, we have one more in store for you, and uh, I promise you, you are not ready for Micah to come and bless us.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. It is such a privilege to be up here today, speaking to you. And I just want to thank Pastor Amara and James for shepherding us or babysitting us every Tuesday. <laughs> <on> the <apprenticeship. laughs> Um, I also want to thank our location pastor, pastors, Pastor Jillian and Pastor Michael, as well as our lead pastors, Pastor Jake and Nicole, for this opportunity today. So I'm going to start off by giving you a movie recommendation. If you grew up in a Christian family in the 90s, you have watched Joseph, King of Dreams. Yeah. So good, right? If you have not grown up, if you did not grow up in a Christian family, you're still here, so thank God. Um, and it's not too late to watch this movie. Um, so please cue it up. I don't know where it's streaming, but don't pirate it because that's illegal and we don't do those things. Um, but if that's the only way we can get it, then we just pray for forgiveness. <laughs> yes. Um, (laughs) don't actually do that um so (laughs) joseph king of dreams um is about joseph and his brothers the sons of jacob and the movie is based off of the bible story found in genesis 37 through 49 so i'm going to take us to the end of the story today but um if you're not familiar with the story it's a hoot as is all of the old testament um (laughs) so do yourself a favor and (laughs) just read those books because um, it's wild. Um, (laughs) And this is one of the stories. So Joseph is um, one of Jacob's sons, and Joseph is really great, I guess. I don't necessarily know why Jacob really loved Joseph, but he really loved Joseph. He made him like a coat um, of many colors. It's in the movie. It looks really great. Animated. Um, But his father makes him a coat, and Joseph has these dreams about his brothers bowing down to him and he tells his brothers and they're like what the heck this guy is crazy um so they don't like him um and they eventually sell him into slavery one day just because they're just like you know what we're done with you um we're just gonna do this um it's really messed up um but God was with Joseph so he goes to Egypt um he's in prison um, but he eventually becomes second-in-command to Pharaoh, um, and he oversees all of Egypt, and then he's actually reunited with his family once again. Uh, and so we're going to Genesis 43, 3-8, um, but just to give you the title of this message, which is already here, God is good when nothing else is. <laughs> um, so Genesis 45, 3-8 through 8 reads, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And I just imagine what that scene was like. They were just not ready to see their brother that they sold into slavery, right? And they had all these emotions, guilt, shame, and then also the love that they had for their brother, right? And so Joseph says to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt." Later on, when Jacob dies, um, Joseph's brothers are afraid that he will retaliate against them for what they did now that their father's gone. Which, I mean, honestly, that does make sense. Um, <laughs> so it's a valid fear. Um, <laughs> but he reassures them that he will not retaliate. And he says in Genesis fifty nineteen through 21, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and for your little ones. So Joseph's like, it's cool. It's cool. There's no, there's no beef here. Um, and in these passages, Joseph repeats to his brothers three times, God sent me here, not you. He tells them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But how can Joseph actually say these things after all that he went through because of his brothers? He was sold into slavery by them. They were his flesh and blood, the people that were supposed to be the closest to him, and they did such a you know, cruel thing. He was in a foreign land far away from home. He may um, have thought that he would have never seen his family ever again. He was wrongly accused and imprisoned, and it may have seemed like he was abandoned and forsaken and all alone, but God was with him, right? And he suffered so much, all as a direct result of his brother's crime towards towards him. And yet, when he sees them again, he has nothing to accuse them of. He tells them not to feel guilty about it, because he recognized that what he went through was a part of God's plan for him, and he he saw that it was a good plan. And when it came down to it, Joseph could say, God sent me here, not you, because Joseph had a revelation from God of why those things happened to him. Joseph saw that God's plan for him was to deliver Egypt and the surrounding areas from a seven-year famine. But God's plan for him was also part of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham in Genesis to make him a great nation, which he does when Jacob and his family move to Egypt and become the people of Israel, and to give Abraham's descendants a promised land which is fulfilled when they are freed from slavery and journey their way to the land flowing with milk and honey. So Joseph's journey paves the way for God's promises to be fulfilled to Abraham and his descendants, all the way down to our savior of the entire world, Jesus Christ. So Romans 8.28 says it another way, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This means that the things that happen to us in our lives happen for good according to his purpose. But that doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. If all things work together for good, then we can ask God in any situation, good or bad, for a revelation of that purpose for what we're walking through. The thing is, we might find ourselves tempted to doubt God's goodness, purpose, and presence in all of these things. Because we think that God's goodness in the situation would have disallowed it from happening in the first place. But it's sometimes the case that God will use a not-so-good situation to manifest a goodness, even though we would have never asked for that situation in our lives. So let's think about some times where things don't go according to plan. Your to-do lists that never actually get checked off. (laughs) Three, five, ten-year goals that just span your entire life. You're like, I have a bucket list. It's nothing has ever been completed on it. Um, Think about your timelines, the story that you would write for your life. The thing is that none of us would ever write our stories to include, include chapters of illness, loss, Heartbreak, betrayal, depression, failure, or disappointment. And I'm also talking about those moments when you're living right and things still go wrong. And it feels unfair. These are the seasons we don't ask God for. But somehow they end up finding their way into our lives. And the thing is, it wasn't God's original plan for us to experience suffering. And in heaven, there will be no more suffering. But for now, in this in-between, God will use the suffering that we face. And our suffering and our pain does not have the final say. God will triumph in those situations and accomplish his good purposes and his good plan for our lives. So let's look at another Bible story uh, to the death of Lazarus, a close friend of Jesus and the brother of Mary and Martha, um, to see how humans act in these situations. Lazarus gets sick and his sisters send for Jesus to come heal Lazarus. But Jesus tells them in John 11:4, that Lazarus's sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And Jesus' response here is meant to shift their perspective on the situation and get them to see God's good intention for the bad situation that they're walking in, so that they don't despair, and that they see the hope um, that is there. But when Lazarus dies and Jesus arrives to their town, Martha says to him, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died." She sad. And at this point, Jesus' words before to her don't seem to be true. The sickness that wasn't supposed to be unto death has in fact taken the life of Lazarus and it seems like this situation is past the point of return. But then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and demonstrates that he has resurrection power, bringing glory to God. Martha's response to the death of her brother, despite Jesus' reassurance, demonstrates that seeing God's goodness in all things is not easy for us. But sometimes things happen in such a way that God's power can be greatly manifested in our lives for his glory. Nobody wants to live through an impossible circumstance where we are praying for a miracle. And yet without the impossible circumstance, we would never learn that God is a miracle working God. Through those circumstances, we see that he is the only power that we can rely on to turn things around. So when things don't go according to plan and we are not seeing his goodness, we can trust that he does have a plan and a purpose to reveal his glory and manifest his power to us. Psalm 23, 6 says that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. His goodness and his mercy follow us every day of our lives, no matter what transpires, sunrise to sundown. God's goodness is a constant reality that we can be sure of. And it's sometimes the only thing that we can be sure of. He is good when nothing else is. And his goodness is a guarantee. We can believe with all of our being that when God is for us, nothing can be against us. So this truth will anchor our soul and will carry us through every circumstance so that we are assured of God's presence and purpose in every corner of the earth and every detail of our lives. If God is still good when everything else is bad, then defeat, destruction, and even death are not permanent but they're opportunities for God to show off his faithfulness in every season of our lives. God's promise of his presence, provision, and protection is fulfilled not just in the promised land or in eternity but in the wilderness and on earth and everywhere in between. The assurance of God's goodness in all things is a gift that God is eager for us to receive. This assurance is the key to obeying, surrendering, walking by faith, not by sight. And it will allow us to live out the glorious plan God has for our lives. So let us ask God for a revelation of his purpose and his goodness in all things, knowing that he works everything together for our good and his glory. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.